0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 17, 2016, and it is... Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it is time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Show. I've got a great lineup for you today. Here's what we'll be hearing about today. We're going to be hearing about leaving a job and dealing with a legacy pension from John Pugliano. This is an important mathematical economics lesson that I think even if you don't think it applies to you, it probably will at some point in your life, and it's really important to listen to the logic behind it rather than the individual situation. Dealing with slow healing uh, and easily wounded skin. Doc Bones is going to weigh in on that. It's a problem more people have than you might think. And as you get older, it's a problem we all generally end up having. Um, thoughts on night vision gear. This one came in for Brian Black or Tim Glantz. Both have answered it from different vantage points. And it'll be interesting. I'm just going to play those two back-to-back on night vision gear. Keith Snow is going to talk to us about dealing with an avalanche harvest of peaches. These peaches coming out of our butt, man! What do we do with them all? Uh, I'm sure that'll make us hungry. We'll talk about the ins and outs of sea berry cultivars and determining the ones that'll work from you, for you. That's Ben Falk's uh, question today. Training after an injury from Gary Collins. This is something many of us have to deal with at some point in our life. Making the most of kombucha with Erica Strauss, and I will be talking to you today. Almost a little mini podcast at the end here about living in a shed for freedom. I'm going to read at least part of an article for you out of the new Self-Reliance Magazine about that subject. And uh, it's an interesting article. And And I'm going to talk a little bit about is that a path to freedom for some? Uh, it is for the person that's writing the article in, again, Self-Reliance Magazine. And then I have a great closing song for you today. Cool stuff coming. Lots more. All of that in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Fortress Defense Consultants offers tactical training, including rifle, pistol, tactical shotguns, specialized classes for women, force on force engagement training, and you can even do customized training with them. They will also travel to your location for larger groups. Find out more at fortressdefense.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life, and the advice I gave most business owners every day was. Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready made Resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. With that, let's take a look at the year 1810, because the episode's 1810. Alex Strug has two for us today at TSPWiki.com. We have Thomas Jefferson's Pacific Empire of Astoria and the May Revolution and the Fight for Independence. And in other news, the United States population hits 7.2 million. That's a 2 million increase from the 1800 census. Billiard rooms open for business in London. Eight ball pool won't appear in the U.S. until 1908. And homeopathy, homeopathy as a medical practice is established. Dr. Samuel Henneman says the highest ideal of therapy is to restore health rapidly, gently, permanently, to remove and destroy the whole disease in the shortest, surest, least harmful way. According to Clearly Comprehensible Principles, Um, I'm actually going to talk about that one today instead of one of Alex's great segments because this is something I know a little bit about because I studied it. At one time, I was actually going to school to learn to be an alternative health practitioner. And while I decided not to complete that path, I did learn a lot while I was on it. And it's become an independent study uh, for me that I've probably gone further than I would have if I would have completed the courses because I decided I didn't need a piece of paper. didn't want to do it as a profession, but I wanted to know as much as I could. There is a lot of stuff out there today, guys, that's sold as homeopathic remedies. Most of it is not. Most of it is not. Homeopathy is either amazing or hokery, and I'm not sure which one it is. Um, And I know people will say, well, I've used homeopathic remedies and they worked. And you may have used something called a homeopathic remedy, and it may have worked, and it may have not actually been a homeopathic remedy. So I'd like to give you a little lesson on what actual homeopathy is. Homeopathy is the belief that as you actually reduce the amount of a substance, its potency as a medicine increases. So the way that you actually make a homeopathic medication is you put a small amount of it into water and you, you put it into a like a test tube with a cap. And then it's beaten on a leather uh, pad for a certain number of times. I don't remember how many. And then a single drop of that is taken into another vial and the process is repeated further diluting the already minute amount of the substance with the belief that the impression of the substance will cause the body to heal itself and what Hanneman did and there is some things i liked about his 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 philosophy anyway and i'll tell you about that in a second is he actually took all of these toxic things like arsenic and arachna and other things and took them into until they began to cause a problem, either a rash or, or boils or lethargy or whatever, and then stopped before he killed himself, and then decided that if you had symptoms that mimicked what this thing caused, this tiny, minute, undetectable amount at the highest concentrations, by the way, or the highest therapeutic values, by the way, would then cure the illness. And it may have been successful at the time simply because it was essentially doing nothing, and some of the medical practices of the day, you would have been better off doing nothing. I I don't really know. But that is what homeopathy is. That is classic homeopathy. That is Samuel Hanneman's uh, homeopathy. And everything that you see today that's like, it's herbal homeopathy and blah, 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 it's not. Now, it may be... A homeopathic concentration, and you'll see things like 20x on them for a strength. And again, the higher the number, the smaller the actual amount is there. And they're usually in some sort of a tablet form today. Um, and you can get actual stuff prepared this way, and it's it's highly unregulated because it is nothing um, it, 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 chemically. If you if you analyze it, you can't even find a trace of whatever it is in it. Okay, so. Then they sell these other things that they label as homeopathic, and they have these active ingredients in them, and maybe they still have the actual homeopathic underlying thing. And I'm sorry, I don't, I don't buy this. I think that if you get any kind of therapeutic effect from something like that, it's from the the medicine or, or stuff like that. And there are things that 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 work that are herbal or or what have you. And they do, you know, heal or cure or solve problems. But I think the concept that we can take a toxin, put a tiny drop of it into water, beat it on a piece of uh, leather, repeat that process, further diluting it uh, five or six times, to the point where we can't with a chemical analyzer even detect it anymore and have it have a therapeutic effect, I don't buy it. Now, what do I like about Samuel Henneman? Samuel decided that doctors were prescribing all of these things, many of which they had never taken themselves or never given to a well person. That any medication given to anybody, the doctor who's prescribing it, should have himself taken it so that he knows what he's doing. And it also should be given to people who are completely well to see what effect it had when it was given to somebody who was well. So you could actually determine whether or not it was beneficial or not. And I think this is what led him to find a lot of things to be harmful And then figure out, well, how do we use the harmful thing in a safe way? Um, But again, I'm just not buying it. Anyway, with that, before we get to your first uh, question of the day and our expert counsel answering it, uh, let's take a look at the uh, Bob Wells Plan of the Week. This week's Plan of the Week from Bob Wells is the Warren Pear. The Warren Pear tree is highly adaptable from zones 5 through 9. It's an excellent quality pear. The tree is highly resistant to fire blight medium to large long neck fruit with pale green skin, sometimes blush red, smooth flesh with no grit cells. It's juicy and buttery with a superb flavor, cold hardy down to 20 degrees below zero and ripens early in August. It's a good keeper, requires only 600 chill hours. And on top of all that, it's so fruitful. So it's a good tree for you guys that have small yards and don't have room for a lot of trees. With that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our first expert panel member today. Uh, we have a question from for John Pugliano about having worked a job and now leaving it and having a pension and the options that you have with that pension, which include basically early withdrawal or waiting for it. Uh, with that, John, go ahead and take it away. Hello,
1: TSP listeners. We have a question from Greg about a state-funded pension. Now, I'm not going to mention the state where Greg is from, just to keep things a little more anonymous, but Greg is 31 years old. He's worked in a state job for 10 years. He's contributed $20,000 into the retirement plan, and now that he's leaving the job, he has the option to defer that pension until he's 65, at which time he'll collect $800 a month, or he has a couple options with withdrawing that money. So that's what Greg's question is. So his two options for taking that $20,000 out today would be to roll it into an IRA. He could do that penalty and tax-free and then invest it on his own from there. Or he could take the lump sum payment in cash. If he did that, he'd be required to not only pay ordinary income tax on that money, but he'd also get hit up with a penalty. Now, I'm not sure what tax bracket Greg is in, but I think very conservatively, we can estimate that he's gonna lose at least, you know, 15%, if not a lot more, on federal as well as state taxes, and then he's gonna have that 10% penalty. So you can see a very likely scenario where that $20,000 can quickly deteriorate into $15,000 or less. Now by the tone of Greg's question, I know that he's very pessimistic. He's concerned with, you know, overall government capital controls, and he's not very optimistic about the state's ability to be able to fully fund and pay out that pension in 34 years when he's eligible. And I think he's leaning towards cashing that out, taking the $20,000, and then putting that in something like silver. Greg, I'm not opposed to earning precious metals, particularly when it's, you know, say 5% of your overall net worth. However, in the situation you're describing, and again, I'm not offering you specific advice or recommendations. I'm just telling you what I would do when I consider the facts the way you've laid them out to me. I just think you're going to take a really big hit with all the taxes and penalties that are going to come out of that $25,000. So you're going to end up with under $15,000, maybe $10,000, $12,000 to put into silver. I think there's better ways to do that. And that's looking at those other two options. So let's look at just deferring the pension and collecting it when you're 65. The main downside of taking that option is that your money is going to lose value over these next 35 years. In fact, if you just use a simple rate of inflation like 2%, that $800 a month will lose close to half of its value. Probably something like $400, $410 would be the equivalent purchasing power in 35 years when you're 65. So that's definitely a negative. Now, let's put the purchasing power aside. And another way we can look at this is to look at the nominal value of what that pension will be worth. That's that regular $800 a month or, you know, comes out to $9,600 a year. Because we're trying to get an apple-to-apple comparison to what your $20,000 would be worth if it grew over those same 34 years at a safe and conservative, reasonable rate of return. So let's assume that you take that $20,000 today, you roll it over into an IRA, it's going to be tax deferred, it's going to be penalty free, and then you let that $20,000 grow very conservatively, not taking extreme risks with it. Let's just assume that you can get a 4% rate of return for the next 34 years. Given today's interest rates, that's a pretty high amount compared to what U.S. Treasuries are paying. But, you know, if you're investing that in the stock market for the long term and you're cautious with it, you know, some years you're going to make less, some years you're going to make more. But for our purposes, let's just call it 4%. After 34 years, when you're 65 years old, that $20,000 will have grown to about $73,000. Now, that $73,000, again, at a 4% rate of return when you're 65, is not going to throw off as much investment income as your pension. Your pension will generate about $9,600 a year. Your individual savings will only be producing income of about $3,000 a year. So there is a big gap there, and so an argument could be made that you're better off taking the pension. However, there's one detail that you didn't mention And I'm assuming that your pension does not have survivor benefits, because that makes a big difference. If the pension doesn't have survivor benefits, that would mean that if you die between now and when you're 65, that you'll lose all the value of that pension. And then even if you live to be 65 and start to collect it, at any point after that, if you die, that $9,600 a year goes away, and again, your your heirs would lose the uh, value to collect that pension. And so without survivor benefits, even though assuming very conservative investments, it looks like the pension would throw off more money than just straight up investing the $20,000 in your own personal IRA. The advantage to having the IRA is that you have the money in your hand right now from day one. So you always have that $20,000 as a minimum now. It will grow to over $70,000 by the time you're 65 the break-even point for the value of that pension to pay out to you the same amount of money that would be in your IRA account if you're investing it conservatively, you're probably going to have to wait until you're about 76 years old. So it really comes down to how long do you think you're going to live. If you live beyond 76, then you're going to be collecting that extra $9,600 a year for the rest of your life. On the other hand, if you die at any point prior to 76, then you're probably better off having that $20,000 in a conservative investment program tax-deferred in an IRA. So based on those numbers, personally, I'd roll the money over into an IRA and then be very cautious with the way I invested it for the next 35 years. Greg, one other thing I want to mention is that, you know, I do share your pessimism about the viability of, of pension programs, and I know a lot of them are going to go bankrupt in the coming years. In your case, I would be a little bit less worried about the state fund going bankrupt or not being able to meet its obligations. And that's because I think that state pension plans are going to be more secure than private companies or labor organization pensions or something funded by a municipality or a city. So, I mean, there's a hierarchy of safety here. If you have a federal government pension, it's never going to go bankrupt because the federal government will always print the money to cover that pension fund. And then the next level of safety would be a state pension. And then it goes down from there. Well, in any case, Greg, that's my two cents. Thank you for your question. If you'd like to learn more about my thoughts on building wealth or my opinions on the stock market, please check out the wealth Setting podcast. For the expert council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth.
0: It's a great analysis, and it really is all about doing the math. That's really what it's about. I personally would already have rolled it. Um, That puts the money in my control, and I can decide what to do with it. Whereas if uh, if I leave it in the pension, I have no control. And, and I don't like my money in places where I have no control, if I have any other option. And, and for me, it's as simple as that. However, I would have done the same math John did, because if the math was, was proportional to being much, much, much better off by waiting to take the pension, and if you were older, for instance, and uh, in closer to withdrawal, then... That might actually change that even though I still would prefer to have my money under my control. All right. With that, next question is for Doc Bones on dealing with skin that's thin and and wounds easy and heals slowly. Uh, Doc, what say you on
2: this? Hi, Joe Alton, M.D. here, also known as Dr. Bones, co-author, of the brand spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, 670, wow, pages of information that'll help you succeed even if everything else fails. You can get it at amazon.com. I'm also the founder of doomandbloom.net where you'll find over 800 free posts, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week's question for the Survival Podcast Expert Counsel is from Rancher, The Rancher, who writes, What is the best way to get slow healing surface wounds to heal? I'm a 60-year-old otherwise healthy rheumatoid arthritis sufferer with a question on skin care that pertains to many people with autoimmune diseases, diabetes, and simple aging. I have what my primary care physician calls parchment skin. As I've aged, my skin is thinned out and damages easily. For example, a simple bump against a door jam may tear a half-inch piece of the outer layer of the skin off sometimes causing bleeding sometimes just weeping a little serum for a person that's quite active in the outdoors with livestock and gardening this is obviously a problem but the worst part is how long it takes for these simple small wounds to heal i presently have about 10 wounds on my hands that have not fully healed they vary in age from about two days to eight weeks when i was younger none of these would have lasted more than a week before the wound would have healed I know that for diabetes sufferers, infections and slowly healing cuts are a major cause of amputations. In my case, I haven't lost a feeling in my extremities that exacerbates the damage for the slow healing wounds of diabetics. I know that when I have a sore and I know that I'm taking a drug that increases my risk for infection, which I am, I really try to take care of the wounds, but they still take a long time to heal even when they are never infected. I asked a dermatologist about this, and his comment was to keep superglue around to more effectively seal the wound than a simple bandage. This may help it from getting infected, but it hasn't sped the healing process. Do you know of any natural herbs, salves, or lotions that would help expedite the healing process? A comfrey salve seems to help some, but since I almost always have breaks in my skin that, that need treatment, it seems risky to use something that's not recommended for regular use. Rancher, thinning skin is a natural consequence of aging and a life lived in the outdoors. Some people, especially those with fair complexions, will have more problems with this than others, but few, if any, will avoid this issue if they live long enough and will experience longer healing times for even the most minor injury. Diabetics and people with autoimmune conditions such as yourself are especially prone. Infections like cellulitis are also a concern, but you don't seem to have a lot of these. Medical treatments for thickening skin exist, but involve prescription drugs like Retin-A creams, which are effective, I will say they are effective, especially on the face. Some people notice irritation with this treatment, however, so discuss this option with your doctor. There are a number of natural remedies for this condition, and Comfrey salve is indeed one of them. Other herbs that might help include aloe vera, calendula, echinacea, and St. John's wort of these calendula ointment seems to be the most effective according to some naturopaths some suggest that coq10 lotions might decrease bruising seen in people with your condition another is honey which has antibacterial action and has a protective effect on minor wounds make sure you use unprocessed raw honey that is very important contact local beekeepers instead of going to the store the heating process they use for commercial honey It removes a lot of its beneficial effects. Now, some supplements that might help thicken skin include flaxseed and fish oil. A study published in a British journal some years ago suggests that some condition that caused thinning skin might improve with these dietary products. If you're not using sunscreen and moisturizers, you should start. Stay away from anything but the mildest soap, especially those that use additives to give it a nice smell. Remember to always apply moisturizer on wet skin for the best effect. And speaking of wet, stay well hydrated. Drink lots of water or clear liquids every day. Improving hydration will affect the elasticity of skin and help it heal faster naturally. One last thing, I noticed that your wounds are on your hands. For goodness sake, when you're out there, wear hand protection. If you don't wear hand protection, you are cruising for a bruising or at least for a cut or two on your skin. Now, as time goes on, we all have to deal with aging skin, but some of these strategies might help speed healing. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, make an old man very happy by following us on Twitter, at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel, at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, and the new current events podcast, American Survival Radio. You'll find links at doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. As you might imagine,
0: given the discussion that I had with you guys today on homeopathy and my background here, I have a few things to add. The first I would say is I cannot tell you use Comfrey in uh, direct opposition to what the government says. I can't do that. What, what I can tell you is that I personally don't believe what the government says about Comfrey. And I'm going to recommend that you possibly read a book. I'll have a link in the show notes to the Kindle version of it, and uh, if you want, you can find uh, the paperback and hardcover versions of it there. It's by a guy named Lawrence D. Hill, and this is the man that did all the work with Comfrey. It's called Comfrey, Past, Present, and Future. And Mr. Hill uh, was working prior to the government's war on Comfrey and had a, a lot of plans for the wonderful things that Comfrey could do across the planet uh including with wound healing, which I'll we'll get to in a second. Um, but what I want to kind of point out is that we wouldn't even have the word balking. So when you know balking four, balking fourteen, stuff like that, we wouldn't even have that word without Lawrence Hill. That that's how big his fingerprint is on Comfrey. And Bocking's actually a town in England and he wanted a word that wouldn't get changed as it was used internationally. So he didn't want to call it like type or a class or something like that. So he just used the name of the town near where he was doing the work because you would say that the same in all languages. So that's why he did that. So just to give you kind of a thing there. Toward the end of this book, he talks about running trials using comfrey salve in convalescent homes for old people that are basically going to die. They're, They're just at the end. That had bed sores and wounds that would not heal that they had done everything that medicine knew to do, and he was able to give these people relief and healing with comfrey. So I'm just saying, I don't know that I would personally, if it were me, rule that out, but you have to make your own decisions about what you do. Um, The whole concept of never use it on broken skin, all I can say is, I use it on broken skin, and I'm okay. That's all I can say. Now, the other thing that you may look into is Lantana. Lantana, I have been told by many an Herbalist, is even a better dermal regenerator than comfrey. And what I'm talking about here is Lantana Camara. And I have not found any readily available preparations for it or what have you. You can get Lantana oil, but I don't know that is what you would really want to do. This may be something you want to plant and work with and figure out for yourself what you know, what works best for you um, as using it as a healing herb? Sam uh, Kaufman, who is an excellent herbalist, stated that he feels that Lantana is better for healing things like scrapes, wounds, bruises, etc., even than Comfrey. Uh, I don't know if I believe that yet, but I haven't experimented with it because I'm pretty happy with the results from Comfrey. But I don't believe you would have the, uh, the higher level of concerns. Uh, that have been brought up from a standpoint of, uh, of Comfrey. But I'm really not sure because I'm not that familiar with Lantana yet. But again, there are different types of Lantana. I am talking about uh, Lantana Camara, C-A-M-A-R-A. And I'll just put a link to the Wikipedia page on it so you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you may want to look into that as another option for healing. The next question I have is on night vision gear. As I said, I sent this to Tim Glantz, but when I send out the questions to the expert council, everybody can see everybody else's questions. Brian noticed that he was mentioned, decided he would step, step in and give his opinion as well. Uh, I don't really know what differences there are yet i haven't heard these two myself i thought it'd be fun if we explored the differences together and it's not a debate or anything it's just two different views that might be very similar or very different i'm kind of looking forward to it so i'm just going to play the answers back to back for you and then we'll come back and take our next question which will be for keith snow
3: hey all you tsp listeners out there tim glance here from Old grouch's military surplus uh, with an expert panel answer for, G- uh, Kent, who was asking about night vision. Uh, he wanted a little guidance, uh, how to, what to select, what to look for, what to watch out for. He says he's trying to plug a few holes in his preps and it seems to be important and, and I do agree. Uh, and there's a lot of range out there. Uh, he said his budget is about $500 and, uh, maximum line of sight's about a little less than 300 yards on his property. Uh, Go over a few things first. First, I do agree that night vision is extremely important when it comes down to the security aspect, uh, for your homestead. Not just from, uh, people, but, uh, when you've got livestock and you've got crops from, uh, critters that will damage them. Uh, ask anybody who's spent any time, uh, you know, in, in current conflicts with the military, and I think they will agree with me when I say that Two of the most important things you need to be able to do uh, to gain an advantage are see in the dark and communicate. And uh, there's technology out there to help you with both. But seeing in the dark, you know, half of our, half of our lives is spent in the dark. Uh, it's a big thing. Now, uh, it can be confusing because you can look at Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, Gen 4, all this other stuff uh there's used surplus stuff there's new russian stuff there's chinese stuff there's digital uh i'm not the night vision expert i played around with a lot of it i have repaired a good bit of the u.s stuff uh when there was no real night vision repair guy out on my thawb i was the go-to guy because i was kind of the electronics guy so i tell you a little bit i know about them here um first off uh Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3. Uh, the Army classifies those based on the technology. Of course, Gen 1 were the first ones. Now, you're going to see U.S. surplus Gen 1, and you're going to see new Russian-type Gen 1. And I will tell you right now that the two are a world of difference apart. If you see some of the U.S. or some really nice stuff for Gen 1 is some of the German uh, Gen 1 scopes. They're always scopes. Uh They're not... uh goggles, uh, they're big and they're bulky, and, uh, but they outperform the little Russian Gen 1s, uh, a whole lot when you look through both of them, and I'll tell you why, is a Russian Gen 1 night vision, has one single, uh, intensifier tube in it, and it doesn't really amplify that much, and that's why you'll always see a big illuminator, which is nothing more than an infrared flashlight next to it, because, uh, you can see the infrared through the, uh, night vision, where you can't see it with the naked eye. U.S. Gen 1s do not have that and act passively, and that's because they use a cascade system that has uh, usually two, three, sometimes two, but usually three of those tubes end to end. So it's amplifying going into another tube that amplifies going into another tube that amplifies. So you get a much greater amount of gain uh, in your light magnification, and that's a huge thing. Uh, the downside to that is you get more distortion around the edges. When you look through a uh, Gen 1, it will fisheye, as they call it, around the edges. Um, uh, it's not gonna have the best resolution. You know, it's gonna depend a lot on, you know, how much moonlight you've got. But on a $500 range, that's the only US stuff you're gonna buy. Um, the old PVS 2 scope, it's big, it's heavy. Uh, but if I was in that price range, I would look for one of the German Zeiss Pharos. Uh, they're usually painted green. They're a good bit lighter. I've had several of them. Uh, I do really like them. And if you watch around on eBay and stuff, you can pick a good used one up for, uh, about that range, maybe $600 or $700. That said, uh, I would really encourage anybody looking at night vision to, uh, up their budget and look at some other stuff. Uh, when Gen 2 came out it's uh, much better much better and uh, when you start getting to Gen 2 and Gen 3 the things you need to look at are uh, and to consider uh, the biggest factors are uh, your resolution and it'll be listed as LP/ mm line line pairs lines per millimeter uh, your second gens will be 40 45 and some can get up. Uh, I've got some second-gen that will get up to, uh, I think, about 57 on the tube that's in mine right now, depending on which model, and you can find breakdowns of these. Uh, your second-gens are going to have about a 5,000-hour tube life for most of them. Some can get up to 10,000 on the later ones, uh, whereas your Gen 1s are about 1,500, 2,000-hour tube life, and when you're buying used, you, know, you don't really know how much of that's already gone. Um, and you get into Gen 3, and you can get into even longer tube life and um, much, uh, slightly higher uh, resolution. My advice is on your budget, uh, having sat and compared a lot side to side, uh, Gen 2 will work for 99% of us. In the situation you listed, Gen 2 will work. And I would look for some Gen 2 devices. Uh, in your budget, what I would look for would be, uh, it was a commercial product made I, by ITT called the Night Mariner. Uh, they made Gen 2 and Gen 3 versions, and you can usually catch a Gen 2 on eBay about in your price range. It's a handheld monocular. Uh, it, there's no provision for a head mount. There's no provision for weapons mount. And uh, I wouldn't fabricate a weapons mount even if I could because it's not designed to handle the shock. But in your price range, uh, that is the way I would go. Now, uh, I would strongly consider, uh, budgeting more for night vision and doing it right the first time. Uh, because you can buy some really nice PVS 7s with Gen 2 tubes, uh, if you shop around on eBay right for a thousand to thirteen hundred dollars. Then you've got a head mount unit that's durable, you know, mil-spec rugged. It's going to get you good resolution. It's going to last a long time, and it's going to be very usable. Uh, there's a world of difference between something that mounts on a helmet or on a head harness and something that you have to hold up to your eye to look through, when especially if you're trying to walk or maneuver around in the dark. It is a whole world of difference. And I do... Uh, strongly suggest for anybody's first night vision that they go with a head mount unit instead of a weapon mount unit or something that's capable of both, like the PVS-14 that can be a head mount monocular or can be mounted on a weapon and look through a night vision compatible sight. And the reason for that is most of us listening here, we're not snipers. We're not going to be sitting up in a guard tower with a weapon all the time. We're going to be using it to check the perimeter, to look for, you know, wildlife, to look for predators coming in after our crops. And we don't need to be lugging and aiming a rifle at every single thing that we want to look at. For one thing, it's pretty dangerous because it could be your neighbor. It could be somebody lost, it could be something else. And I'm not a fan of aiming a weapon at somebody just to figure out who they are. Number two, because it's unwieldy. It's hard to walk around, you know, and do that. So, uh, head mount is the way to go. And then, for a few hundred dollars, you can buy an infrared laser to mount on your weapon if you really need to be, uh, worried about, uh, shooting at night. And you can aim with that infrared laser that can only be seen through night vision. Uh, I've killed a lot of coyotes with that exact setup. It works. It works well. But, uh, look at it, do a lot of research, spend a lot of time online, and uh if you've got any place locally or anybody locally that will let you come try their night vision and use it and get a good idea for the feel, that's really a product I think you need to uh, uh, experiment with and figure out what you like before you shell out the money because it is a lot of money. So uh, look at that and uh, do a lot of reading online. Just Google Night Vision Generations, Night Vision Reviews uh the night vision forum on ar15.com is exceptionally good at helping people get advice and get started uh they can tell you you can go in there and just read the archives for you know days and days and soak up the information before you make a decision on what you're going to buy and uh sit around and uh re i'd, I'd encourage you to rethink your budget and, and put a little more into that because when you do take the plunge into night vision you want to do it right and there really is no cheap way to do that right. But uh, when you get it done, you will be very happy with the end product. Hope that helps, and uh, if you got any more questions, you can always reach me uh, through my website at oldgrouch.com, and I hope everybody has a great day. Thanks a lot, Jack.
4: Hey, TSB, it's Brian Black from ITS, answering a question from Kent, who asked a night vision question that was either directed towards myself or Tim Glantz. So I wanted to kind of plug my side of this, um, so, Kent asked what to look for, what to watch out for, how to select some night vision. I said he's trying to plug some holes in his preps and seems that it may be important at times to have the ability to see in the darkness. I agree. My research, although limited, has been very confusing. Binocular, monocular, head-mounted, handheld, magnifying, thermal, and pricing. Oh, my. Uh, what a range. It's all over the place from $15 to over 3000 I think for my purposes, under 500 is probably where I need to keep it. It will cost more than this, but I should probably plug a different... Oh, if it'll cost more than this, I should probably, probably plug a different hole. I'm located in Illinois and have a maximum line of size of less than 300 yards anywhere on my property. So, Kent, um, my opinion is to not go cheap when it comes to night vision. And I know that's kind of hard to hear because hopefully, you know, obviously you had a budget that you were trying to shoot for, and I'm about to kind of blow that out of the water. So... Um, I would highly recommend a well-made PBS 14. Uh, you will not regret it. That $500 would go to waste, in my opinion, if you were to pick up a lesser, um, a lesser model of night vision. Either it's not going to do what you want it to do, or it's not going to uh, facilitate the options that, w- it, that a normal PBS 14, that's a high-grade Gen 3, um, would give you. So, I would highly recommend going over to TNVC. Um, I don't get paid for advertising for them or anything like that. They're just a company that I go to whenever I have night vision needs. It's a tactical night vision company. They have a wealth of information on their site. They have great people to help you on the phone if you have questions about night vision, and they will definitely guide you in the right direction. And while I'll give you some some, a little bit more advice from my side, um, I would absolutely defer to them for anything and everything for night vision. So... Uh, instead of binocular, I would very much recommend a monocular. So a PVS 14 can be head mounted through either a mount that's uh, that can attach to a helmet, or you can get like a skull crusher that you can just have a mount attached to, and it's kind of a slip-on cover that actually is not a helmet, so to speak. Um, there's lots of things out there for mounting options, and the PVS is going to be a PVS 14 is the most versatile um, out there for something like that. Um, you can get different things like a scope-mounted night vision, but in my opinion, that's not really a good way to go because now you, anything that you want to look at through night vision, you're pointing your gun at too. So there can be some limitations there too. Being in the field, you don't obviously want to walk with a gun held up in the in cheek well trying to look where you're going too. So a PVS could uh, could facilitate that. So the downside of having a PBS-14 as a head mount is that now you either have to take it off to put on a gun to shoot through, or you have to get some kind of laser designator or aiming device, like a like I have a D-ball. It's the I-squared. It's the civilian version of that. So um, that's an option, too. Now, you know, if you add up all those things that I just mentioned, though, you're probably well over your $3,000 maximum that you mentioned. So. And it can be upwards of seven, eight thousand dollars, even ten thousand plus, if you want to get into a binocular system, like two different PBS 14s, or two, uh, or a dual tube system. That's a monocular system. So that's just a little bit on that. Um, like I said, I would definitely defer to TNBC to ask some questions there. They, you know, they they're a great resource to help you with that kind of stuff. So hopefully that helps. And thanks for the question. Keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. com. Thanks
0: again. Actually, in many ways, very similar advice. Um, Tim doing his best to give you some options for, for spending less money, but really saying it's better to spend more. I have a, a couple things to add. Um, both Brian and Tim mentioned uh, you know, a head mount type unit, Uh, Specifically, more toward the monocular side. I completely agree for a variety of reasons. One, by using a monocular, the other eye is available for other things. Two, for me, um, I have terrible depth perception with binocular type uh, NVGs. So much so that I I refuse to try to drive using them when I was in the military. And there were times when we were on certain guard duties and stuff, that would be, and I would just. I'm going to be in the shotgun seat. Uh, I do I, you not know, feel safe driving because my depth perception was crap uh with the type of NVGs that we had when I was in the military. Um, the other thing is I completely agree with the concept of not pointing a gun at things that you don't intend to destroy, ever. Um, it's so much so that... I really recommend you guys that are deer hunters, squirrel hunters, etc, always carry you know regular daytime binoculars with you when you 're hunting so that you 're not using your scope to check something out like another hunter wiping his ass for instance that kind of looked like a deer tail because he was dumb and used white you know toilet paper on public hunting grounds that would be one example of a really dumb thing on both sides and Binoculars generally do a better job of scanning and things like that than your scope on your weapon, your rifle. So I believe in just taking that forward into the night vision world. This is the other reason. If I have a night vision apparatus that's head mount and my nearest weapon is my forty i I'm good you understand that that's that's the big thing it's not now married to the weapon these are expensive pieces of equipment and if you have an you know a night vision scope on your you know AR15 then your AR15 is your only tool in the dark and it may not be the right tool for the given situation i may not be grabbing my AR15 to deal with a possum or a raccoon or something like that last thing on the coyote thing um let me tell you that what Tim said about using uh, a marker laser, laser sight, infrared, and night vision equipment does work. It is effective. But don't you believe for a minute that coyotes can't see IR at all. I have, I'll see if I can find it somewhere, but I have game camera footage, uh, you know, infrared night vision game uh, camera, game trail camera of a coyote coming in kind of looking around, doesn't notice the IR, and he looks directly into the camera. And the second he does it, that animal moves with a speed. You, you, you don't really realize how fast they are. And as soon as he looked directly at it, and I don't think it hit him in the eye like burn your eye out type of thing because of the way the camera was mounted off, but he was looking directly at the, the, the emitter to where he could see the emitter. There's nothing else that could have set that animal off. And I know people are going to tell me they can't, they can't. All I'm telling you, man, is if you're going to do it, um, you know, maybe put that side up only when you're going to shoot and don't hit them in the face with it because I'm telling you right now, I've seen them react to it. I just have. Uh, next question is for Keith Snow on dealing with basically an avalanche of peaches.
5: Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from harvesteating.com. I love peaches, and today's question here is to help out some folks that are um, going through the peach apocalypse that's going to be happening in the next couple of months as the peaches come into season. And uh, I was just at the beach recently and starting to see some um, local peaches, which are seem a bit early, but uh peach season is coming. Peaches are awesome. And what do a lot of homesteader type folks do with peaches? They can them. And that's a great thing. We've, Always canned peaches. Um last year we didn't, but usually it's something we always do. We'll buy local peaches and we like the free stones. There's two types of peaches. Early season ones are cling stones, which means the pit doesn't come out. You slice it and you can't get the pit out, so you gotta just eat around the pit. Or the free stones which come a little later are a little juicier and better in my opinion. And that's where you can um you know cut the peach, open it up and the pit will come right out so we used to can those and that's great because you can you know have peaches over ice cream or do all kinds of stuff um but trying to come up with a few other ideas um is quite easy with peaches because they're a very versatile fruit now some ideas um I'm a big fan of this stuff called peach jam and I make a spicy peach jam it's basically peaches that are um cut in half the and I use the the freestones the pit is removed They're skinned, so you drop them in boiling water and and you peel the skins off. And then you cut them up. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. They could be haphazardly cut. Toss in the bottom of a pot, about a cup of sugar, a little pinch of salt, and a habanero chili. You could use a scotch bonnet, but anything that's kind of ripping hot. And you just um, cut the chili in half. You don't need to mince it. So just cut it in half, stem and all, toss it in there. And you want to cook this stuff. Bring it up to a boil, and then on a low simmer, stirring occasionally, you want to cook it for at least an hour. And it's going to break down and become, uh, there'll be a lot of liquid in there and more than you think you probably need. So have a little bit of pectin, which you can get in any store um, at the ready. Uh, probably about a teaspoon of pectin in there towards the very end. Stir it all together. Uh, also, I forgot to mention about a teaspoon of lemon juice goes in there at the beginning. So sugar, lemon juice, habanero pepper, towards the end, a little bit of pectin, and, of course, a little pinch of salt. You cook that down, and then you're going to want to chill it. Now you've got this peach habanero jam. Remove the habanero pepper, and um, you can pulse this stuff in a food processor if you like it smooth. I, I happen to like a little bit chunky. Now, this is versatile stuff. You can do quite a bit with it. Um, it makes probably the most amazing sort of... Um, dipping type spread with any kind of fried chicken. Um, picture, you know, chicken, like Chick-fil-A strips, basically. If, if you were to picture that with some of this peach habanero jam, th- that's the idea. But you can use it in other ways on top of grilled fish. It is really cool stuff to have on hand as a condiment. Um, what about a peach smoothie? Peaches, bananas, and vanilla seeds. Not vanilla extract, but if you get the vanilla pods, you open them up, Scrape out some of the seeds, and you make a smoothie. Um, You definitely want the skins off the peaches, but you put that stuff in the Vitamix, about four um, peaches that are cut in half and pitted, one banana. You could put... um, a teeny bit of water in there, or even if you like orange juice, that's great. But some of those vanilla seeds, you whiz that up. It makes a really interesting drink. You know, if your kids are around, you want to put some ice cream and make it a milkshake, even better. Another thing that I love to do with peaches – is um, and this is getting a little what they say long in the tooth as a dessert because the you know the food bloggers have kind of killed this to death, but it's still pretty cool. You make a balsamic glaze and that means you need to get some high quality balsamic vinegar, not that garbage liquidy stuff from the supermarket. You probably need to go to a um, gourmet store and try to get an aged balsamic doesn't need to be super aged but something of high quality. Put that in a sauce pot, bring it up to a boil, lower it to a simmer, and simmer this stuff for about 30 minutes until it reduces quite a bit, and then cool it off, and you'll have uh, a syrupy balsamic glaze. Then take your peaches, and this is a great place if you want to make dessert and you don't have super ripe peaches. You can use um, ones that are just, you know, they're a little too hard to eat out of hand, but they make a great dessert like this. So you just slice them in half, remove the pit, brush them with a little bit of olive oil, and they go cut side down on a medium um, grill. You could do it, you know, on a grill pan inside as well, but whatever you do, you want to make sure your grill is clean, hot, and oiled. You put your peaches on there and leave them, because these things will make a mess if you try to move them around. Just put them and look, and when, they, when that... Um, peach uh, that's on the surface of the grill when it caramelizes it'll easily be removed turn it so you get some cross hatches put that on a plate and you should it should get soft but not mush and then uh, what's great is mascarpone cheese which is that italian thick dessert cheese that is um, commonly put in tiramisu Um, so you just take a little scoop of that into the peaches that have been grilled Take some of your balsamic glaze, drizzle it on there. Heck, if you don't want to do the balsamic glaze, you could make a simple pan caramel sauce and drizzle that over there. Really great way to have peaches. Something also that's kind of awesome is making a pan caramel sauce, and um, once it comes around, putting in about a teaspoon of um, high-quality salt, something you could use like a kosher salt or like a Maldon or some kind of a sea salt, Put that in there. Now you have a salted caramel. Same thing. Leave the skin on the peaches. Cut them in half. Take out the pits. Put them cut side down in the caramel. And this needs to be on very low heat, about 20 to 25 minutes or so. Um, the, the peaches will get softened. They'll kind of absorb some of that salted caramel. Um, put them on a plate and then spoon some of the caramel sauce over it. Maybe garnish it with some herbs so it looks pretty. That is wonderful. Um, next up. Is clafoutis now this is a classic French recipe from the countryside, usually made with cherries now cherry clafoutis is very classic in the central part of France, all over France actually, but in the central part in burgundy it's it's um pretty amazing and it's basically peaches uh, not peaches um, cherries that are place into a dish, and then this clapoutis batter um, goes over. And it's basically like a thin pancake batter. And once you put that over it and you bake it in the oven, wonderful things happen. Now, in France, they'll actually cook the cherries with the pits, which is kind of clumsy. I always pit them. Yeah, the batter will, will take on some red color, but to me, it's better than dealing with pits. But in this case, peaches um, can be awesome in a clafoutis. Now, take your—you can leave the skin on here, but take the pits out and slice these peaches into nice slices. And then get a round dish, um, grease it with butter, and then you take your peaches and you put them in there. And try to start in the middle and make little concentric circles. So it's and you know stack them up. It looks very pretty, like a rose almost. But So you fill it up with peaches, and then you take your clafouti batter. Again, something like about four good farm-fresh eggs. This is definitely a place where your best eggs, the ones you get from the lady down the street, um, your own chickens, duck eggs, whatever, you don't want to use lame, miserable store eggs. Just don't even make the dessert if that's what you have. So you get some good eggs, and you... Um, whip those up, a little bit of sea salt. And then what I like to do is make a combination of some fine organic yellow cornmeal with a little bit of whole wheat flour and then all-purpose flour. And just eyeball it. Start out with a little bit of cornmeal. You probably want at least 50% of the dry ingredients to be cornmeal. Don't need any baking soda here. And whip, whip this thing together. Uh, again, if you've got vanilla and you can put in vanilla seeds not the extract you're going to make a really classy sort of um, batter here light then you just pour this batter on top now you don't want to devastate the peaches with the batter you pour it over it so you can still see the peaches but you'll see some of the batter you know in all those crevices all around the edges then you bake it at 350 for about 35 minutes the peaches will get soft and you'll wind up with something. You're going to put sugar, by the way, into the um, batter. I forgot to mention that. But not a lot. Like if you're going to do one of these, you're not looking for a cup of sugar, maybe a quarter cup of sugar. The idea is to taste the cornmeal and the and the pastry, um, the eggs. That will all cook up. And, and this is a fabulous way to have peaches. It's one of my favorite summertime desserts. And, uh, now that I'm talking about it, I'm excited to see some peaches so I can make it myself, but that is a terrific way to use peaches up. And, uh, you can freeze that by the way afterwards. So a little peach clafouti, um, again with the cornmeal. Now that's, um, a special combination. Peaches and cornmeal uh, are wonderful together. Now, another thing you can do, and this will be your, your last idea is a peach chutney. Now I'm, way into Indian food, and chutneys are huge in India. They're used for dipping different things. You can make some, you know, potato roti, which is basically um, cooked potato with ginger and garlic and chilies, and then some flour, salt, baking um, soda, or no, baking powder, and you make a mashed up potato mixture, and it goes inside of a dough. Ball and then it's rolled out into a pancake, cooked a little bit of oil on a cast iron griddle into like a flatbread. Then you're going to want to cut that up and have something to dip it into. Now you can make a peach chutney by cooking down peaches, sugar, spices like cumin, chili powder, coriander, ginger, turmeric, fennel, fenugreek, cayenne pepper, um, even a little bit of tomato in there, and you cook that way down. Um, did I mention coriander? Yeah, I did. <laughs> you cook that way down into a thick chutney, cool it off, and then, you know, put in a little dipping container, and you could, you know, dip your roti, any kind of, um, Indian food, non-bread, whatever, even with different, um, you know, basmati rice, you could use that chutney. So these are some ideas to use up peaches that aren't just your plain old canned peaches. Hope it helped. Hope it inspired you. As always, guys and gals, I appreciate everybody's support. Do check out my spices and seasonings at harvesteating.com or on amazon.com. They ship really fast over there. And thanks so much for supporting not only what I do, but what Jack
0: does as well. Take care, everybody. Later. And now I'm hungry. Uh, moving on, so that we don't belabor our hunger. Uh, let's hear from Ben Falk on selecting sea berry cultivars.
6: Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design and the Expert Council have a, a answer or or feedback on a question here about sea berries. Um, caller says they have um, a dozen or so sea berry plants coming into production, and um, interested in how to use these, um, the berries themselves. Um, it's great. You have eight to 10 foot high Lycoras. That's great. Must be pretty happy there. Um, they won't get much taller than that, at least as far as I've known. Um, and so as far as, um, varieties, I mean, there's any of the varieties, would probably do well for you. They're not very they're not too finicky, but we find Russian varieties are best. If you if you find German are already best on your site then go with German. If you find Russian are best, go with Russian. I think Lycor is a German variety, uh but I may be mistaken on that. And Golden Sweet, I'm not sure which that is. I think that's Russian or Eastern European. So I would try to yeah, you know, I would lean in the direction of of its um, point of origin, but they they cross over as well, especially if you're in um, not in extreme climate zone. I don't know where you are in the world. It doesn't say. That would be helpful to say that. Um, but you know, they're pretty. They're very wide climate zone plants. It's one of the reasons I love them. I think they're really crucial for a lot of us, as far as having a very almost guaranteed medicine source in zones like 1B, 2A, I have confirmation of them growing in, and northern, mid-Saskatchewan, like very cool places, it gets negative 50 and windy, to I've seen them growing in Tuscany, um, Italy, where it's you know basically zone 9 plus. Um, As far as preparing them... um, Oh, actually, you're in northern Idaho. I didn't see that. Sorry about that. Um, and um, as far as preparing them, there's a Russian variety should do well for you, for sure. Um, but German probably wouldn't, wouldn't be bad there as well. Um, preparing them, we would make Oxamel. I mean, that's, that's our, our favorite way of preparing it. That's an that's old herbalist um, preparation with a lot of honey, quite a bit, and a little bit of apple cider vinegar. To taste, and it really makes makes this crop, uh, the berry, be much better. Raw is okay, but it, it's a whole nother level of, of of goodness to make it in that way. Um, and it also helps it store in the fridge for a while, um, but freezer for long term storage. And as far as managing their crazy suckering habit, we don't see them sucker much unless we stab around the base to to want to promote suckering, so we can dig them up and have more plants. Uh, but if you do, you could sheet mulch. I would recommend just digging them up and and trading or selling the plants. Um, there's certainly a huge need for them. There's a big demand for the plants. So, um, or just snip the suckers back. You know, scythe them when they're young enough with a bush scythe or a ditch blade um, on a scythe. But good luck. Thanks a lot.
0: Just on sea berry real, real quick, why, why? So you know why people care. Um, the first time I ever had sea berry juice was at Ben Falk's uh, homestead. And they gave me this little bitty, you know, like a half a shot size uh, of, of sea berry juice, which is plenty, by the way, for its nutritional and nutraceutical value. And I took a, a drink of this. And the first thought that went through my head is, oh, that's good for me. You can tell, I, I don't know how to explain it, but you can tell, like, oh, that's that my body should have this. And I've had my struggles with growing them here. And I've heard they'll grow in warmer climates, and I don't think it's the heat. I think it's the alkalinity that makes it difficult on them here, but uh, we're going to take another stab at them going into the planting season next year and do a little bit more with them and see if we can make them work. I think the ones that I lost I gave too much shade to because I thought that would be the solution to the heat, so I'm going to try a different approach next year. Okay, next question now is for Gary Collins on training after an injury and avoiding re-injury and dealing with the injury that's just not going to go away. Hey,
7: everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of The Primal Power Method, and have a great question today from Sam about an injury and what he can do in order to possibly work around it or to help it. Sam uh, jammed his actual elbow uh, during a biking accident. Now he suffers from pain in the back of his shoulder, and it's been nagging and ongoing. And believe it or not, that is actually very common uh, to have that sort of physical pain after you jam your arm or elbow. It actually puts a lot of pressure and can damage uh, your shoulder joint or damage some of the ligaments and, and, and tendons connecting. Also, rotator cuff, believe it or not. That's a very common rotator cuff injury and also rotator cuff tendinitis. They're different in a sense. The easiest way to diagnose whether you have a partial t- rotator cuff injury, a, a full rotator cuff injury is very easy. to It hurts like mad. I mean, there is very easy to figure out. But a partial tear and rotator cuff tendinitis are very much more – they're very difficult to actually diagnose. The easiest way, though, is if you have a partial rotator cuff and it can go on for years and nag you forever – is I would recommend, Sam, put your arm straight over your head. And if you feel uh, pain, kind of like a shooting pain, outside of the joint, it feels like it's really close to the joint, but it's outside of it, that probably means you have a partial rotator cuff tear. Um, now, rotator cuff tendinitis is actually very common to have symptoms where you're feeling them, which is in the back of the shoulder blade. Very, very common. And... Now, and, and Sam indicates he has a lot of difficulty far as doing, you know, the 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 exercises that he likes to do: deadlift, bench press, dips, chin ups. He says those aggravate him, and yes, those are like the worst exercises to do if you have a uh, tendonitis in your shoulders, or if you have a partial rotator cuff or rotator cuff injury. So, I would recommend definitely stay away from those. Those exercises, um even uh, push ups are are really hard on your rotator cuff, and I know Sam said he's a bike rider. I am too. If you're suffering from either tendonitis, partial rotator cuff, shoulder just shoulder pain, bike riding is brutal on it. It is one of the worst actually athletic events you can do just to aggravate it because you're constantly putting pressure. On, on both arms, which are directly, when you're bouncing on the handlebars, put pressure on your shoulder joint. That's exactly what it does and absorbs all the shock goes through your arms and into your shoulders. So uh, bike riding could be aggravating as well. Well, now that we have a, a general idea of what the injury could be, and I would recommend, he says he's gone to doctor's. The easiest way to tell would get be to get a CAT scan, but even that, I've heard people have all the the same symptoms of a of tendonitis or a partial rotator cuff tear, and it never shows up. But from what they tell me and the symptoms and and everything we go through, it sounds like that's what it is. Um, easiest way to kind of prevent that is avoid the aggravating uh exercises. That is the best way. And and I know Sam's saying, hey, I'm only thirty. Here's something too that this I had to get this pounded in my head because I've had a bazillion injuries, several surgeries. I've been I've wrecked my body. I've done a good job of it uh mechanically as far as a lot of mechanical injuries. And that is I'm learning as I get older is if something aggravates or you have a kind of a repetitive use injury, well stop doing it. You know, whatever aggravates, you just need to stop doing it. There's things in my life that I just do not do anymore because of injuries that I've suffered in the past or chronic pain that I suffer from from those injuries to this day. I've just learned don't do that. Don't do that exercise. Just got to cut it out. It's a tough pill to swallow at times, but that's just life. You know, as you get older, things break. They don't work so well. And uh, my attitude is if you go do something and it hurts every time you go do it, again, simply stop doing it. Um, As for some other things he can do, I have an anti-inflammatory package that I sell on my website. And that's why I actually put it together. It's what I use as, uh, you know, it has uh, fish oil, turmeric, and my uh, organic greens powder. Helps with inflammation. Another thing is glucosamine. And it takes a while for glucosamine, though, and this is something people get aggravated with. But it takes about four to six weeks for it to kick in. And and there's numerous versions of uh, glucosamine uh, uh, chondroit and the way it works. But, it, it, you know, it just takes a while. And I have found that using that with joint injuries, especially shoulders, it really seems to work. Another things he could do is go to an acupuncturist. There may be actually a, uh, you know, there could be an issue with what's called a, a trigger point, which is a muscle that is kind of turned off and has stopped working due to a trauma. And what it's done is it's balled itself up into this tight, tight area. And if it's at the back of his shoulder, he's not going to be able to get to it. And what they do is they just dig in there and it actually is a trigger point release is what they call it. And it is excruciating. I've actually had had tears come out of my eyes a couple of times and had to tell them to stop. It hurts so bad. But afterwards, you're just like, oh my God, it feels so much better. So you might want to try that too. And And they'll be able to tell because they'll be able to, as soon as they hit that trigger point, you're going to know it because you're going to about jump out of your skin. It, it is that sensitive. Um, you know, and, and stretching techniques, you know, don't overstretch, you know, just keep your, you know. Another way too is if you grab the back of your tricep and with your other arm and you pull it across your chest and if you get a uh, pain in the rear, like he's saying, in the rear of his shoulder, that to me would be, that would tell me that is pr- more than likely the rotator cuff tendinitis. That that's what that would tell me. Um, but do some minor stretching, don't overstretch it. If it hurts, if it's sharp pain, stop. Sleep on your back. One of the biggest aggravators and to make it chronic is to sleep on that shoulder. That is going to wreck you. You will never. Recover from it if you continually sleep on that shoulder you have to sleep on your back and I recommend sleep on your back because some people go well I'll just sleep on the other shoulder I have noticed that it doesn't work as well as sleeping on your back um, also what he can do as far as exercises like I said I would just avoid it and I've actually had a partial rotator cuff tear it's it's excruciating and I basically for a couple years I just had to baby it you know i didn't Really lift and do exercises that involved a lot of pressure on my shoulders. And with that, and I've also had tendonitis in both shoulders at one point for over from overuse. Uh, ice and heat. This is one that you'll get a bazillion different versions of how you should do it. But for me and my experience over the years dealing with injuries, five minutes of ice and five minutes of heat. Rotate it for 15 minutes, be done. The best time to do it is before you go to bed, because that's when you're the most inactive. Um, so try that. Um, I hope this helps. There's there's a lot of things, and when you're talking injuries, it's just a can of worms. But I think I'm pretty sure what what's going on with Sam, and that injury will be chronic unless you take care of it and kind of baby it. Uh, if you have any questions, make sure to hit me at contact at uh, primalpowermethod.com or hit me in the show notes. Thanks a lot, guys.
0: Okay, I, I, I know this is going to sound like a broken record, but put Comfrey on it. Um, I, I, I'm not going to tell you, you know, somebody's not going to write in and go, I've got brain cancer. I'm going to be like, put Comfrey on it. I'm not, I'm not that way, guys. I'm really not, but with soft tissue, joint, and bone injuries, the best thing I found is Comfrey. And I'll have a link to the, the commercial product I recommend if you're not going to make your own salve. Um, today, uh, in the show notes, as, as I do often, because I'm so impressed with my personal results. Remember, I'm not giving you medical advice. Gary's not either. Neither one of us are doctors. All I can tell you is my results and the results of many other people lead me to believe that it can be beneficial. Um, I, I just, again, I know I sound like a broken record, but it, the, my progress with my knee has been amazing. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, had I sought medical advice, the the the, the scalpel's would have been out immediately. I, I know that. I know from the way the injury occurred, the way the injury manifested itself, the the initial pain, uh, the, the lack of any real recovery until I got home and put comfrey on it. I, I I just can't say enough good things about that herb, and then do everything else Gary said because it's not going to just fix it. I think that's what people have the, need to understand. It a lot of our Herbal and alternative remedies take longer to see results than we're accustomed to with modern medicine. Not because they don't work as well, because they actually heal the problem, whereas most modern medicines actually alleviate the problem. Those are totally different situations. I believe that herbs like comfrey help our bodies to rebuild and heal themselves. and I also think they stimulate healing beyond the body's general healing uh, mechanism. Certain injuries, uh, tears, rips, twists, pulls, tendonitis, etc., the body will only heal them to a certain point where they actually begin to function again. And without other therapies, a lot of times, the healing either becomes remarkably slow or even begins to just cease, the body goes back to doing other things with its energy. When you use certain things, I believe, personally, that it stimulates healing, and I've, I've read research that would ind- indicate that comfrey is good for that. So I would just say it's an adjunct, it's something to add on to what you are going to do anyway. Next question is for Erica Strauss. We haven't heard from her in, heard from her in a while on kombucha. Erica, take it away.
8: Hey, TSB, Erica from Northwest Edible calling in this week to answer a question on kombucha from Allen in Maine. Alan has mastered a basic black tea kombucha and wants to know how to mix things up and play around with different kombucha flavors. All right, so let's just do a quick review for folks who might be newer to fermenting all the things. What is kombucha? Basically, it's a lightly sweetened tea that is fermented through the use of a SCOBY. That's SCOBY, S-C-O-B-Y. It's an acronym that stands for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. Now, as you guys know, in lacto-fermentation and in vinegar-making, we rely on beneficial bacteria to do the fermenting and to make lactic or acetic acid. And in booze-making, we rely on yeast to ferment and make alcohol. With a SCOBY, we have this kind of happy multicultural middle ground of both the bacteria and yeast. Now, a SCOBY itself looks kind of Kind of like a jellyfish in a jello shot had a baby. Uh, it's kind of brownish and gelatinous and a bit goopy and a bit rubbery, and honestly, scobies are not the most attractive thing. If you're familiar with Mother of Vinegar, very similar kind of look. We feed our SCOBY tea, typically black tea that's been sweetened with sugar. The tea has tannins and nutrients, and the sugar has carbohydrates, and together these things feed the SCOBY's bacteria and yeast. The scoby sits on the surface of the tea and does its fermentation sort of from the top down. As you might expect from something that's fermenting with a little bit of bacteria and a little bit of yeast working together, the fermentation creates something that's a little bit tart and acidic, like a mild apple cider vinegar, and just a tiny, tiny bit boozy. Homemade kombucha usually clocks in at about 1% alcohol or less, so the alcohol content probably isn't something you need to worry about like from an impairment standpoint, but it is something to be aware of if you strictly avoid all alcohol for health, religious, or personal reasons. The longer you ferment your kombucha, the stronger that vinegary pucker flavor gets. Lightly fermented kombucha is zippy and light and refreshing and pleasantly sweet tart. Whereas long fermented kombucha starts to taste very similar to something like an apple cider vinegar like Dr. Bragg's. And one more thing to know about kombucha is that with every batch, the mother SCOBY will grow a baby SCOBY. So if you make your own kombucha, within a few months, you're going to have more SCOBY than you really know what to do with. And this is why the easiest way to get started in kombucha brewing is to find someone in your town who's already making kombucha. Chances are they'll have a ton of sort of baby scobies they'd be happy to share. And then in a few months, you can pass on the favor to another friend with your own excess scoby so those are our kombucha basics Now, when Alan emailed me his question, he gave a basic kombucha recipe that I noticed was very similar to what I use. And, you know, that doesn't really surprise me. A good basic kombucha recipe is going to be fairly consistent in having three things in addition to a healthy SCOBY and, of course, pure water. The first thing is the right amount and the right kind of tea. You need enough tea to keep your SCOBY healthy and well-fed, but not so much that the flavor of the finished kombucha is super dominated by tannins black tea is the easiest and most reliable tea for making kombucha. It's definitely what I recommend folks start with if you've never made kombucha before. But any true tea, which is to say the leaf from the Camellia sinensis plant, will work. So you can play around with flavors of oolong tea, jasmine, darjeeling, uh, even flavored tea based on black tea like peach, ginger, apple cinnamon, that kind of stuff can be used. In general, lighter teas will result in a lighter flavored kombucha, and the darker teas will give you kind of a heavier and product like you would expect the second thing in a good basic kombucha recipe is going to be the right amount of sugar you want enough to feed your scoby without causing the kombucha to become overly alcoholic Uh, you don't want to overfeed the yeast component of the scoby i like to use organic sugar it's sold as evaporated cane syrup Uh, i buy it in bulk at costco but you know that's basically like marketing lingo and granulated white sugar works just fine too for the purposes of making kombucha the third thing you're going to want is a bit of old kombucha or a bottle of store-bought kombucha as a primer for your batch. What this does is it jump starts the acidity of your kombucha so that molds and whatnot can't colonize your tea before the SCOBY has a chance to get going with that fermentation. Some people will also use raw apple cider vinegar for the acidification, but personally, I prefer staying in the kombucha family. All right, let's put all these components together in a really basic kombucha recipe. To make 1 gallon of kombucha, I bring just under a gallon of water to a simmer in a non-reactive stainless steel pot. The key thing here is you don't want to use cast iron or aluminum because both of these metals can impart some uh, unpleasant flavors to your finished kombucha. To your simmering water, you want to add 1 cup of sugar and 2 tablespoons of loose leaf black tea or 8 tea bags of black tea. And then turn Turn the heat off under your pot of water, let the sugar dissolve and the tea steep as the entire thing cools down. When your sweetened tea is cool, add in two cups of reserved kombucha from a prior batch or a 16 ounce jar of store bought raw kombucha. Mix that together and then strain everything into a one gallon wide mouth glass jar. And then slip your clean, healthy SCOBY into the cool, sweetened, acidulated tea. Cover everything with a clean tea towel to keep dust and bugs and that kind of stuff out of your kombucha, but um, nothing that's going to prevent free airflow into the jar. So you don't want to cover it with plastic wrap. You want something that's going to breathe. And that's pretty much it. After five to seven days, your kombucha will be lightly fermented. Temperature plays a role in how fast this goes, as with any natural fermentation. But this lightly fermented stage is where kids tend to like kombucha tea. It's still mostly sweet, but just a little bit tart and zippy. After about seven to ten days, the kombucha will start to take on a more balanced, sweet, tart flavor. And at 10 to 14 days, you'll start to get more strong notes of kind of vinegar puckeriness in your kombucha. At three weeks to a month, your kombucha will be be very sour and can be used like vinegar in things like salad dressings. All of these levels of fermentation are just fine. It's just about what you like. So taste the kombucha frequently to find the stage you enjoy it. Just make sure you're careful not to contaminate your kombucha while you're tasting. I generally just pour a little bit out of my jar into a separate cup and taste from that and let the rest of the kombucha proceed along with its fermentation. So that's it. When you like the taste, it's done. You pour the kombucha into some bottles, you make a new batch, and you start again. Okay, okay, that's not really it. I kind of lied. Here's the thing. What I just described is kombucha made a single fermentation method. Single fermentation kombucha is dead simple. It's primarily what I make, and it's what I recommend people start with. It results in a reliably delicious probiotic-rich drink that's mostly uncarbonated, but if you funnel the kombucha into some clean old soda bottles and seal them up and pop them in the fridge, you will get a decent amount of fizz from your kombucha in just a few days. But because all the fermentation with this method, method is done in the presence of the SCOBY. We do have to be really careful not to introduce things that might weaken or damage the mother or throw off that symbiosis between the bacteria and the yeast, which means the options for flavoring are very limited with this single fermentation method. Basically, all you can do is really play around with different types of tea. And that's all well and good, but it's pretty limiting. And I think that Alan in Maine is looking for some bigger, more creative options. So kombucha, Just secondary fermentation opens up a ton of flavor options for us. If you're a home brewer, you do any kind of mead making or country winemaking, the idea of adding additional flavorings during secondary fermentation will be nothing new to you. My husband, for example, is a great home brewer, and he very often dry hops his brews with a floral or spicy hop when he transfers to secondary. This adds an additional layer of hop flavor and aroma without adding substantial additional bitterness. And kombucha isn't too different. The secondary fermentation stage allows us to add all kinds of stuff to our kombucha that we really would not want to add directly to the primary fermentation along with the SCOBY. So to add a secondary fermentation to your kombucha, you'll want to get your primary fermentation to that sort of early, mid-fermented stage. This is in the presence of the SCOBY. Typically about seven to nine days is what I shoot for. So from your primary fermentation, you'll want to set aside your scoby and two cups of that finished kombucha because you'll need those for your next batch and then to the remainder of your kombucha you can add almost whatever you would like Um, fruit juice herbs ginger hops these all work very nicely i'll talk about specifics for flavoring in just a second but for now let's just continue with the process you'll want to bottle your flavored kombucha in airtight bottles that are safe to hold pressure and if you guys don't have any idea about the safety of naturally carbonating something in a sealed container just do me a favor, do a little research before you do this. You might have to release excess carbonation during secondary. Overcarbonating anything in a glass bottle will turn a perfectly nice beverage into a bottle bomb. Homebrewers already know all about this, but if you don't have any experience with how bottle carbonation works, uh, it's probably a good idea to stick to plastic soda-type bottles. You'll know when those are fully carbonated uh, because the plastic bottle will become very hard to squeeze. You'll want to leave your bottled flavored kombucha to mature in the secondary fermentation for anywhere from one to two days to a week at room temperature. Some people will go even longer in secondary, up to a couple of weeks, especially if it's very cool out. Um, but again keep an eye on carbonation because you don't want to have an over carbonation situation. When the flavor of your kombucha is where you want it, just go ahead and pop it in the fridge and you can enjoy those bottles for a month or so. Okay, now we have our basic method for making flavored kombucha using the secondary fermentation technique. So here are some broad broad categories of things you can use to flavor your kombucha. The easiest possible option is a fruit juice. Any fruit juice can be added, but from a flavor standpoint, I, I say just ask yourself if it's a flavor that would taste good with a little apple cider vinegar added to it, and you'll get a pretty good sense of if it will work with kombucha. Apple, pear, uh, cranberry, strawberry, blackberry, these all work very well. The only juices I personally don't like for adding to kombucha are citrus juices like orange and grapefruit, but some people do really like orange kombucha. It's just not a flavor combination I personally care for. When you're doing this, when you're adding juice, you want to add about 20% juice and 80% kombucha. So if you're starting with a gallon of finished kombucha out of primary, by the time you've held back two cups for the next batch and tasted a little along the way and lost a bit to evaporation, you'll probably have about 13 cups to flavor. If you add three cups of juice to this 13 cups, you'll be right back up at a gallon of kombucha and ready to bottle. And your ratios will be close enough. This is not rocket science. Uh, That's the first thing I recommend. If you haven't flavored kombucha before, start with fruit juice. It's quite easy. If you're Using a very sugary juice like apple juice, just again keep an eye on that uh, fermentation because the sugar in that juice can cause the residual yeast in your kombucha to go a little nuts. You might get some uh, pretty fizzy kombucha. Okay, second option fresh, frozen, or dried fruit. Adding all kinds of fruit into secondary is a great option so long as your fruit isn't sulfured or otherwise treated with antifungals or antibacterials. This is primarily going to be an issue with dried fruit, so you will want to make an effort to seek out organic, non-treated dried fruit for your kombucha. When using fresh or frozen fruit, you want between 20 and 30% of fruit in your mix. So similar ratios to the juice here. For dried fruit, I go very easy. I go not more than 5% of your flavored kombucha. Uh, A cup of dried fruit in a gallon of kombucha is a pretty good ratio and will be plenty. What happens is the dried fruit will absorb a ton of the liquid as it swells. So honestly, I think if you use a whole lot of dried fruit, you just lose too much kombucha. A third option is spices and flavor extracts. And for this, I mean things like dried spices like cinnamon or flavor extracts like vanilla extract or almond extract. Go really easy on these guys. Like I would start with a half teaspoon in a whole gallon of spice or extract. You can always add more later, but many spices, especially things like cloves, can get very dominant in a hurry. So this is a great option for simple flavor zings and you can add a lot of flavor this way, but start slow. For fresh ginger, which is incredibly good with kombucha, I'd add one half to one teaspoon of peeled, finely minced fresh ginger per finished pint of kombucha. So if you end up with, let's say, those 13 cups of finished kombucha out of primary, you would have six and a half pints of kombucha. It means you'd need six and a half teaspoons of minced ginger. So that's a slightly generous two tablespoons of ginger. There's some kitchen math for you right there. Okay, fourth option for flavoring your kombucha fresh herbs. Fresh herbs can be great, and I think they're especially good in combination with other things. Um, So think lemon balm blackberry kombucha, strawberry basil kombucha. These are gourmet whole foods, $8 a bottle type flavor combos, and they're very fun to play around with. Unfortunately, herbs are hard to give a definitive guideline for, because some, like tarragon and rosemary, can be quite powerful, while others, like chervil, are so delicate that they're quite hard to detect unless you use a ton of them. My best advice is Is use common sense. Know that the harder woody herbs like rosemary and sage tend to be much stronger in flavor than soft green herbs like basil or sweet woodruff. And then, you know, simply play around. Add a sprig or two to a bottle, taste after a day or two in secondary, and add more if you prefer. Okay, friends, I am pretty much out of time for this week, but I hope this has given you a good introduction to kombucha and some insight to the many ways you can make this drink your own with various flavor options. Uh, again, this has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life for the Expert Council. Happy fermenting. Keep those great questions coming. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, TSP. And I will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks.
0: All right, guys. So um before I do my segment, I'll go ahead and do the kind of end-of-show housekeeping here real quick uh, because I want my segment to roll right into the song. And I'm going to talk to you guys uh, about... Uh, the concept of living in a shed as an interim step, at least, to freedom, and from an article out of Self-Reliance Magazine. Before I do that, though, again, if you like the show and you want to support the work I do, consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade. That really is the number one way we're able to pay our bills around here. Just go to the thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get a lot of great discounts to stuff you're probably buying anyway, and your membership will more than pay for itself. You'll get a lot of other really great stuff that's available only to members when you log in for the first time. And remember, though it is $50 a year, you can try it out for as little as 5 bucks a month to give it a shot and see if it works for you. And I've never refused a, a refund request, though very seldom do they come. So you you know that either you're going to be satisfied with your, your cho- cho- choice to support what we're doing or... I'll give you your money back. Uh, next up, the other way to support us, and it's so simple. Go to tspaz.com, t-s-p-a-z.com. Uh, I have a really cool thing up on tspaz today that kind of fits this ending story really good too. It's a book. It's from the 1800s. In fact, it's from 1864. Yeah, a book from 1864. It's not actually from a, it was written and published in 1864. But it really fits good with our ending segment today. But if you want to see what it is, you'll have to go to tspaz.com, dot com. If you're not interested in that book, then just do your shopping on Amazon like you always do. It's the easiest way to support us. Just every time you're going to shop on Amazon, put in tspaz instead of Amazon, one less letter. Get there. See the item of the day that we put up. If it interests you, you know, it interests you. If not, you saw something cool. And then uh, just search for whatever you want. Buy whatever you want. Check out. No extra money. And uh, just do your shopping like normal, and you'll support our show. It really couldn't be easier. And consider doing business with other members of our community through the TSP Business Directory. Um, Today's supporter of the Business Directory that we're going to feature is Saving Little Smokey. It's a novel written by a TSP listener based on a true story about an orphaned bear injured during a massive wildfire. You can get a signed copy by following the link on the TSP Business Directory. That's really cool. I'm kind of interested in that myself. I, I love the Business Directory and seeing what all of you folks are doing. Remember, you just go to tspbiz.com, or if you're at the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, just click on Business Directory in the tab on the top. You can see all of the great businesses, see how close they are to you, see what they do. You can search. You can do advanced search. It's a cool thing, and we've set it up to serve this audience as, as best that we can. And remember, you can list your business there for as little as five bucks, right? So, I mean, it's a great way to get some exposure, the great place to be found, and to find other great people to do business with. So, this article in Self-Reliance that I want to finish up with today is called Working My Way Up, Part 1, Living in a Storage Shed. It's by Centena O'Killahay, I don't know how, it's an Irish name that I can't pronounce. I won't butcher it any further. My original thought was when I read this this morning, uh, I would read it on the air, and then I realized it's a really long article because it's very in-depth into the how-to of of what goes on. So uh, a one-minute synopsis, and then my thoughts on it, I think, would be more productive for the podcast because we had a lot of expert counsel stuff today, so it was a longer show. Um, Basically, the concept is Santana uh, ends up in harm's way uh, financially because he grows up poor as crap, uh, gets a great job making lots of money, and then, since he's never had money before, gets a lot of problems, ends up basically giving up his house, just tells the bank, here's the keys, uh, you guys can foreclose because I can't pay anymore, and, and does the same thing with um, his car. Does have money saved up, buys a little piece of land somewhere, and puts a $2,000 storage shed on it, and gets an old camper, and decides I'm going to live in the camper and figure out how to make this into a homestead, doesn't have time that year to get a garden in, it's too late, but just starts clearing everything up, cutting wood, organizing stuff, and starts to realize the winters where he, and he doesn't say where exactly in the world he is, but winters are too damn cold to live in an old camper. You, you freeze to death. So I got to make some kind of hard-sided structure, I don't have any real money, get a little bit here and there, and converts the shed into a little, a little cabin. Puts a wood stove in it. Ends up being too big, but it's what he could find. It was the most affordable thing and has since downsized to a smaller, more appropriate uh, thing. Uh, Had bought some of the Harbor Freight um, solar panel stuff and, and ties them all into a single array. Has battery. Can run his laptop. Has some lights. So he's got heat. He's got, you know, basically the basic comforts. And he builds himself a thing to make a bed. Uh, it has an out, little outhouse just outside that uses, a you know, the sawdust, uh, uh, bucket method and, uh, and, and lives there and so, and eventually builds a slightly bigger cabin out of a shed and figuring out how I'm gonna make this work basically. And, you know, can't get any loans because, you know, he's got a foreclosure and a return vehicle. And, you know, that's just bad as it gets. Well, when I read this, I thought for many people, especially you young folks out there, what if you did this before you screwed up? What if you did this as a plan? And I know it's getting harder to find a place where you can you know, put a storage shed and basically make it into a house and live off-grid as far as city codes and things like that. But there is land available to do it, and frankly, this works a lot better in northern climates than southern climates. The problem with southern climates, especially when you try to do something like live in a shed, is air conditioning. So you need to be able to get electrical hookup. That usually is a little bit more of dealing with the department of making you sad uh, we we call that the government. Uh, but in many places, you can put a shed in and get power to it. You can get p- metered power to it. You don't have to tell them it's going to be a house. It could just I have this place, and you know I do work out here and stuff like that, and I need power so I can run my table saw or whatever. You can borrow your buddy's table saw and sit it there so the guy that comes out to inspect can see it. You know, I need to be able to run this thing. And because uh, once they inspect a place like that, they usually go away and never come back. And if you're in a wooded area, I mean, there's ways to do it. That's that's my point. And what I thought when I read this is, okay, I'm in my 40s. I've gotten to a reasonable level of success. I've got my three-acre little farmette. Um, I'm, I'm happy. I, I spent most of yesterday afternoon laying in a pool. I, I'm not going to go do this at this point. But if I was 20 again, I, I, I damn well might. I damn well might. Because... What type of freedom does that give you if you have something that's that low cost to live and if you learn to build things, right? what can you do long term with something like that? And you know would my question to many of you is would, would you be able to do it? See when I look at it and say, well, I'm not going to do it. that doesn't mean I couldn't do it. That doesn't mean I, you know, I won't do it. Um, if I was single, I, I might, I might. I mean, my homestead is a compromise between my wife and I, like everything a married couple does. I would be much happier somewhere in the mountains where I could go out my back door and catch trout and shoot squirrels and, and, and you know, hunt, hunt deer and, and things like that. I, I, that actually, to me, as much as I love permaculture and I would still have plenty of that stuff going on around the house, I would rather re- rely on hunting and fishing to gather meat than feeding 150 ducks every day. Um, I really would. So when I look at that, I think that could be a very appealing approach to take. And the difference in doing it consciously versus, okay, this is my only play now. And maybe some of you are in a place where it is your only play, like it was uh, for Santana here. But a 20-something that has no real debt yet, that can just, you know, a lot of these young folks, you guys are still living at home and things like that, you know, work your ass off for a while, develop some financial reserves, stop spending money, you know, on whatever you're spending, whether it's going to the bar, chasing girls, you know, video games, whatever. Just just hoard money for, you know, a few months to a year, and then go make a play like this. Because you know, I've looked around and he bought his shed for about two thousand bucks, and it's I think it was a ten by fourteen. Uh, but you can you can go much larger than that and stay under $4,000. If you could find a piece of land to put that on uh, and, you know, put something up that's more like uh, 16 by 18, 16 by 24, something like that, uh, especially with a high, uh, like a loft, so you could put the loft up as a sleeping bed and basically do the tiny house thing and have it look like a shed. I mean, there's, there's something there for, for a lot of people. And I think back to being, you know, 21 years old, just out of the military. And this never occurred to me to do something like this. And I think, okay, if I were me at 17 and going to join the Army again, what might I do? And I actually think, well, number one, I probably wouldn't have joined the Army, but I, I probably still would have if I was back in 1990 living in rural Pennsylvania. It, it was what gave me the opportunity to do something with my life because I had nothing there. and again, as I mentioned yesterday, I look back at a lot of people I went to school with and they're still doing nothing. they They really are. I don't mean it to be mean or anything, but they're they're not really and because there's not a lot you know the people who didn't leave there's not a lot to do there and uh, there's still some good things about the place, but when it comes to opportunities especially pre-internet, I mean really there wasn't much. So, instead of going in the military as a mechanic, I may have went in the military as you know doing something in construction. And the other way to do that, you know, would be it's not as easy as it was ten years ago because the construction boom isn't going like it was ten years ago. But you know, you can learn a lot taking odd jobs as a as a framer. Uh, when I first moved here to Texas, I met some guys in a bar, and I ended up not doing this. Because I got another opportunity that was better, but uh, they they said you know, if you want a job. It, you know, you got a hammer, or you can get a hammer. Um, we do framing work, and you know, it's uh, ten bucks an hour to start. And if you if you if you do good, uh, about a month into it, you'll make about fifteen. Uh, it's it's basically cash money contract work. You do your own taxes and stuff like that, so it's not the greatest, but it's money. And, uh, if you, by the way, if you don't end up with a raise after about a month or two, you're probably not going to be working anymore. So, But, I mean, you do that for a while. Maybe then you do drywall for a while. You can learn all of these skills while working. And, uh, you know, if you did that for a year or two uh, while living at home uh, or with a roommate or whatever you do to save money and just hoarded money and developed the skill sets, you could put up a pretty nice little dwelling pretty quick. And you know, the more off grid you go, the less you have to deal with demand. And I just wonder how many people out there that would uh, that would make a a really great start for. I just wonder. Um, I definitely think the shed route toward a small home makes more sense than the rolling tiny homes. I think that when I look at what people spend on those things, I just I shake my head and I, I don't get it. And I know some people do, and I know some people love it, and if you listen to me from one of them and you're like, but I love mine, I, God bless you, I believe we all have the inalienable right to pursue happiness as we were endowed with by our creator, and we all should pursue that which gives us the greatest happiness as long as we're not hurting anybody else. I personally think this type of an arrangement makes a, a much better, uh, way to go. And if you, uh, if you, you know, if you just have basic, you know, carpentry knowledge, a lot of these sheds you can get for a lot less money by doing your own assembly. They come as kits and they go together incredibly fast if you know what you're doing. We have one here that's an eight foot by eight foot one. I would, I would not recommend something that small to live in, but I guess it'd be better than nothing. And um, the guy that put it up, he was, you know, they're going to they're gonna deliver it and install it and be done with it uh, on Friday. And you know, like Friday at like 3:30, no one's shown up yet. And I'm fuming. You guys know how I get when I'm angry, right? I'm fuming. But wife's I like, calm down, I'm like, no, it's supposed to be in today because I'm going to be doing work on it tomorrow. There's no way they're going to get it done today. And then the guy shows up with a trailer and all the shit. And uh, it's like almost 4 o'clock on a Friday. There's no way this guy's going to be done. Now, I, I know he does this every day of his life. And he has every piece of equipment specifically, and he's probably put together a hundred of the you know, small models before. But this man by himself rolled out of here at 5.05, got here about four, four, uh, five minutes to four. So an hour and ten minutes, and he was done. And that was shingles on the roof and everything. This uh, Again, this guy was fast. But if you were slow, you should still be able to do it today you know and then the taller ones you know i i think you'd have to make a decision for yourself whether you want to do it or get somebody to do it for you but um it's something i think about often if i if i were if i were a single guy or if i were a young guy and i could find an inexpensive piece of land somewhere and there there are ways to do it and by the way if you want to uh to to hear some ideas for how to do stuff like this there is a um Book out by M.D. Creekmore. I'll see if it's on Amazon. I'll link to it. If not, I'll just link to his site. He does the SurvivalistBlog.net, and it's called the Dirt Cheap Bug Out Retreat. And he has some really good insights in there for finding land. So that might be something else you want to check out today. Again, I'll have some sort of a link for you to that book in the show notes. I really enjoyed reading that book when he wrote it and sent me a copy. Uh, But with that, I want to move into our closing song today. So our closing song today is uh, kind of fits with this whole theme, right? It's Take Me Home, Country Roads. Uh, by John Denver. I decided I just wanted to play this song, and it sort of fits with today. And um, You know When I was just talking about where I come from, Central Pennsylvania and West Virginia guys have a lot in common. I would say everything except Pittsburgh and Philadelphia in Pennsylvania and West Virginia have a lot in common. The culture, the attitudes, I think maybe the ethnicity is a little bit different. Um, Both primarily white, but um, West Virginia having an awful lot of, uh, European, uh, West European and, uh, Irish as their, their background, where you have an awful lot more Eastern European, Slovakian, uh, Russian, Georginian, Lithuanian, Ukrainian, uh, Polish, uh, Irish as well, but a lot of the Slovakian thing in Pennsylvania is, is the ethnic background, but people live the same way. Cole was king, et cetera, did a lot of damage to the land people hunt people fish people feed themselves and so when i hear songs about west virginia you know and the blue ridge mountains and stuff it i've been there and it still takes me right back to you know where i grew up hunting and fishing in 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 central pennsylvania and for all of the lack of opportunity in places like that there's an awful lot of opportunity to still live free and to live left alone and to to make a go of things um and maybe you have to go further west now than back then. But I love this song. I love the, the point of this song. I hope you enjoyed it on your Friday. I hope you had a, a good experience with us today at the Survival Podcast. Please continue to support the work that I do, whether it's becoming a member, whether it's shopping at T-Spaz, or just telling people about the show. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
2: Almost heaven, West Virginia, the Ridge
3: Mountain, Shenandoah River.
2: Life is old there, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing
3: like a breeze, country roads.
7: drops in my eyes until
3: Me. The radio reminds me of my...